0: Good morning, church. Good morning. It is good to see each and every one of you. If you have a Bible, would you find James chapter 3 in your Bible today? James chapter 3. So far, and if you're just joining us, we are in a book study called James, and we've been going through it for a few weeks now. And so in James chapter 1, we learned how to be patient in trials. And then if you were to summarize chapter 2, we learned how one practices the truth. Specifically, last week we learned that real faith produces genuine works. Now, I am happy to report that last Sunday, you and everybody else at our different locations sponsored at least 1,750 children with Compassion International. So I'm so excited about that as we're celebrating. We want to keep these children in our prayers and definitely ask God to do a mighty work in their lives. And who knows, one day, maybe one of those kids will be here to tell us and to express just how God has impacted their lives through your faithful giving. So thank you for that. Now, you may or may not know uh, that I have a military past, and sometimes I bring it up, uh, to help illuminate topics for you. And years ago, I had the privilege. It was like really luck of the draw. We deployed from SEAL 2, and then they got rid of the old building and moved everything into the new building. And so we got to come back to a brand new building. But the standard practice when you had watch on the quarter deck in the Navy was when this special magical vehicle would show up called the Roach Coach, you would let everybody know it's there. And so we would have pretty arduous PTs in the morning, but around 9.30, this vehicle just loaded with all kinds of wonderful things to eat would show up. And your job was to say, attention in the SEAL Team 2 area, the roach coach has made its approach. And then every SEAL that was present would come down, every tech, and they would swarm that little van and get every chicken burrito they had. And tell you what, it was a lot of fun. Now, we get back to this new building and of course, being extra generous, the master chief let me be home, I think, for two days before I had watch. And so, like, you know, perks of the Navy, right? And so as I'm there, I see the vehicle. I'm so excited. And so I get on there, and instead of hearing cheers after I talk about the roach coach, I heard people screaming at me. The commanding officer came down his hall. The command master chief came down from his. They flanked me, yelling at me, and like, can you not read? And they pointed to this three-by-five card that was on the desk there, and it said, attention in the Silting Two area, the Naval Mobile Canteen has now arrived. That's what I didn't say. Now, the point of the story is, this is where a young guy with a tongue has a decision to make. For the master chief looked at me and he said, Peters, how would you like to get this ride on the weekend? And I fought with my flesh and I lost. I said, you know, I don't think it comes on the weekend, Master Chief. Guess who got to find out? (laughs) And I was right. All two days I was there and no naval mobile canteen. But here's the deal. We all have a universal problem today and it is our tongue, every one of us. So this should be a lot of fun as we dive into God's word because you can elbow and rib anyone you want in here Because we all at different times have failed with how we use our words. So let's take a look at the word of God and see if we can't find out how to tame our tongue and to give honor to our Lord and Savior. James 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gather in your holy presence, seeking wisdom and guidance, as we turn to the book of James. Lord, Your servant James teaches us about the power of the tongue, a small part of our body that holds the potential to steer our lives towards peace or destruction. We pray for the grace to use your words to reflect your love, to build and not to break, to bless and not to curse. And as we turn to your word, open our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to accept the teachings that you have for us. Let the words spoken here today edify and draw us closer to you, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And the church said, amen. Amen. All right. Well, now that I'm a papa and I have five grandkids, I'm a big fan of trying to get all those sweets down to the lowest level, you know. You've heard the phrase, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so there's easy access. Well, I want to do that right up front by just telling you what the big idea is of this whole text that we just read. And I was surmise that it's this: The tongue is the best measure of Christian maturity because it reveals the condition of one's heart. Let me read it again. The tongue is the best measure of Christian maturity because it reveals the condition of one's heart. Now, years ago, Nancy, my bride, and I were sitting in a room, and our little four-year-old boy come running around the corner, screaming, "Mommy, Daddy!" Erica, his little sister at the time, is writing on my walls. We're like, oh no, let's go see. And so we follow this little four-year-old and he points down to this little girl in her Huggies or whatever brand we had. And she, sure enough, had a crayon and she was writing all over the floorboards. But then we looked up about three feet and we saw a lot of letters written by our four-year-old boy. were like, very interesting. So what he didn't realize was that he actually tattletailed on himself. (laughs) That's exactly what our words do about our own heart, right? Our words tattletale on us, and they tell us exactly what's going on in our heart. Now, at first brush, this text can be quite easy to read, and rightly so, that it's about the danger of the tongue and the damage that it can create. But if you look at another level, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, you can also see the word body that's used by James to mean our physical body or the church at large. And so that helps us understand why he's putting such a caution on seeking to be a teacher. Because if you teach incorrectly, you could steer the whole church in the wrong direction. There's a big caution here. And so in this picture, again, we see teachers can guide the body of Christ just like a rudder guides a ship. The key issue with the rudder is who's at the helm, who's the pilot, and what is his desire? Because he will choose the course. Likewise, we need someone to control our tongue. And according to our text, it's either by the will of God or by hell itself. So no wonder there's a warning from James and a caution. Uh, And so I certainly think we need to pay attention to that. So with that said, let's move to our first of three checkpoints today. And the first one we're going to call the power of to guide. Now verses one through four set the stage. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, if we're not careful, we'll think James is discouraging people to teach altogether. But a more accurate view is to see that James is trying to safeguard this role of teaching and to make people aware of the consequences of it. For many people sought to be a teacher back then for the wrong reasons, because of the prestige that was attached to it and the generous support of others. Now, a fair question one could ask is, why do teachers receive stricter judgment. There's a couple of them I want to suggest to you. First, a teacher must speak the truth and not their own opinions. Anytime we open the Bible and we teach or preach, we must be careful to say what the Word of God says. Now, there's a time and place for opinions, right? But you don't want to inject your opinions to change what the Word of God says. We have to be very careful about that. Second, a teacher must understand their words impact those they teach, Years ago, I discovered what Spurgeon prayed before he preached. And I pray it every time before I preach as well. And it's simply this. Dear God, be merciful to me, a sinner. At the end of the day, I know I'm just a man and I'm about to teach God's word. I need all the help I can get because I want to be faithful to deliver the text to you exactly what it says and not inject my own opinions. Third, a teacher must walk it like they talk it. We know the phrase. But one way that it is evident is not by what the teacher says, but it's by watching how the family responds to what the teacher says. If the family's on board, then you know it's lived out 24-7, seven days a week. You see a lot of eye rolling and body shifting. You might want to question what's going on at home, right? So that would be the third one. Now here's another reality. Everyone stumbles. Everyone If one does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect, is what our text says. Now, this word perfect is the word for mature, not sinless. So we want to be careful about that. Clearly, according to God's word, only Jesus led that perfect life with no sin. But that maturity comes back when we think about our tongue, right? When a teacher stumbles, it impacts many people, even to the point where it does cause others to stumble. Examples of helpful and hurtful teachers abound But I want to share two with you, one, extremely positive, and then two, about as negative as it can get. So Henrietta Mears was a Christian education uh, developer back in the 40s and the 50s in California. She was so impactful with her ministry on how she taught that within a few years, she grew the little Sunday school to 4,000 people, an unheard of number for that timeframe for a church. Now, over the course of her life, she poured into so many people that they actually gathered to give her a tribute before she passed away. And in that tribute, at least 400 people were present who were influenced by Mrs. Mears to go into full-time ministry. A little side hobby she had, she invested in one of the boys who actually became um, the chaplain for the Senate. And then two other guys that I bet some of you might know. She took a young Billy Graham underneath her wing, And helped him and then she also took a guy named Bill Britt and helped him start Campus Crusade not bad for one lady who used her tongue properly to edify the just the people of God so encouraging now some of you are old enough to remember November 18th 1978 cult leader Jim Jones was a charismatic but paranoid leader on that ill-fated date in Jonestown, the commune, in Guyana, Jones conducted one of the largest mass suicides in American history. The death toll exceeded 900, and over 300 were under the age of 17, to include small children and babies. The caution from James goes to teachers, but there's a warning for all the students as well. When it comes to the church and God's Word, be a good Berean. Examine everything that you hear through the lens of the Word of God. And if it does not match up, step in and correct it. Every man that preaches takes it very serious. But every man is just a man, and they could make a mistake. So maybe even approach a preacher graciously and say, I think something doesn't match up, or I have a question. But know that, again, the due diligence behind the scenes, pastors sharing manuscripts, we want to be so careful that we speak accurately from the Word of God to build you all up. Now, Jesus, I think, gives us the proper framework on our discussion about the tongue in Matthew fifteen eighteen, Listen to what he says. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. All right. Let's look at a couple specifics on this power to guide. We have some beautiful ones right there in the text. My wife and I recently were down in Fort Worth, and we went to the rodeo of her daughter and her husband. This is, I think, right before baby William showed up. And in the indoor arena that night, We got to witness some barrel racing. It was open division for the ladies. But out of all those barrel racers, a little girl who was five years old won. She was the only one under 13 seconds, and it was amazing. She was about that size of this little girl right here. And to see her control a beast over 1,000 pounds and make it go where she wanted with just the bit in that mouth and those reins was something to behold. Now, that's a really cool example of how you can use the bit to control a horse. My wife has observed me desperately trying to use it for other reasons. I got to go home one time, and my mom had a few horses, and she said, hey, you should ride Rusty. He's a great little horse we just picked up. I said, great. And so he was gray, and he had specks of rust and uh, just a beautiful animal. And I said, anything I need to know about him? She's like, oh, no, he's a sweet horse. So I get up on him, and sure enough, like, we're riding around, like, this is good. And then I did the one thing that a loving mother, no offense, Mom, would have shared, like, if you drop the right side of the reins, he will sprint and try to take you through a barbed wire fence. And that's exactly what he tried to do, right towards my daughter and my son and my other daughter and my wife. I had to pull that horse's head all the way back to his backside to get him to stop. But thankfully, that bit allowed me, even though I'm not an expert horseman like that little girl who won the barrel racing, I was able to keep that animal from doing great harm. Now, the bit and the rudder have a lot going on, and the rudder, just to show you the importance of that, in the SEAL teams, when we would actually do attacks on ships, this is the best picture I could find of a rudder, not very big, but the idea is that like, if I can disable the rudder and we don't want to destroy the vessel, then I can keep it from getting underway for some time. So sometimes we would take just little bits of explosives and uh, make sure the rudder goes away. And so a rudder, definitely I understand the importance when it takes time to actually navigate the vessels out there. But like I was sharing, the bit and the rudder, they must overcome opposing forces. A bit struggles with the wild nature of the horse, and certainly the rudder struggles with the sea out there. And it's fair to say that our human tongue has some opposing forces too. For every child of God, you have your old nature, and that old nature sometimes visits when you don't want it to show up, right? And sometimes you say things you wish you would have never said. So what are we to do? We know an expert horseman knows how to use the bit and control the horse, and we know a wise pilot steers the ship through the seas and knows how to track and do all that. But each of us needs someone to help us with our tongue. Perhaps that's what David meant in Psalm 141, verse 3. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. All right. First checkpoint, the power to guide. Second one, the power to gut. And I chose this word intentionally because that, in fact, is what words do sometimes, don't they? They can gut you. They can be brutal. Let's look at God's word. On October 8, 1871, a fire started from a small spark in the O'Leary Barn in Chicago. At 8.30 p.m., the fire started, and by the time it was put out, 100,000 people were homeless, 17,500 buildings had been destroyed, and 300 people died. What a lot of people don't know, because of poor communication back then, is another fire took place in Wisconsin, one of the deadliest in American history. In this fire, 1.2 million acres were destroyed, and over 2,500 people died. When a fire has fuel, it will continue to burn. One of my roles when I taught in Alaska was to teach young men how the basic of survival skills. And one of those skills is how to build a fire. And keep in mind that a lot of these young men are not showing up as outdoorsmen today. They're showing up from the city They maybe have never even built a fire in a fireplace. So there's baby steps involved here, right? But we take our time and we teach a pretty lengthy class, I'd say almost an hour, on how to build a proper fire just in case you needed to save someone from hypothermia or other things. So I had them all staggered out about 400 meters apart, and I started checking on them. And I eventually arrived to one campsite where two guys obviously tried to make a fire. There were seven little spots where they started fires, And then they weren't there where they were supposed to be. So I went to the next camp, and they're sitting down with the other two guys. Now, they're still student status, but it's kind of a gentleman course at this point, so we're not too hard on them. And I said, "Uh, why are you not back at your site with the fire? They're like, there's a fire vacuum down there. I was like, a what? They're Like a fire vacuum. Come on, let let, us show you. I was like, please, show me what a fire vacuum is. And they had run out of everything to start a fire, so I gave them some of my stuff. And so they set up the tender, and they started sparking it. It lit. They had all their sticks there. And then they just stood back, and they're like, now watch. And so I watched, and then I realized what the problem was. Somehow, the best of the best here, uh, they missed the point where you continue to add sticks to the fire to keep it going. (laughs) Somehow in their mind, they thought once it was started it would just burn. It's serious out there, right? Like, they're, they're out there defending us right now. <laughs> now, you know the deal. We can only make fun of our own. And certainly, I've got plenty of blunders in my life. But I wish I would have known Proverbs 26, verse 20 that day. For the lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no whisper, quarreling ceases. Isn't it true? We can either shut down those gossip conversations and change maybe even the course of someone's life, or we can contribute to it and add more fuel to it and watch it destroy. James uses fire for a good reason. One of the greatest fears in the ancient world was fire. People had few resources to fight it, even in the cities. And a fire not only destroys, but it defiles. And many of you know who have had house fires, you often have to throw out everything because the smoke actually defiles everything that was not burned up. We also know words used like fire can do the same. Most of us sadly have heard words that have hurt us to the core. And I say it's fair to say most of us have used words that have hurt someone else to the core. Sometimes the greatest hurt can be dealt by the ones that are the closest to us. As I was studying this, I was even wondering if James, the half-brother of Jesus, might have said some improper words to his big brother. If he's like any other brother out there, I bet he did. Words from parents can hurt too. Listen to this story. Winston Churchill was ignored by both his parents. His father, Lord Randolph Churchill, detested Winston. His mother merely paid him no attention. That Winston was a disappointment as a student, he scored 53 in the English comp class, seemed to confirm their parental opinion and in their minds justified parental neglect. Upon graduation from Sandhurst, young Winston imagined that his father would be proud. Instead, Randolph was furious that he had not scored high enough to make it into the 60th Rifles, a crack regiment. Randolph wrote a letter to his son containing these venomous words. Do not think I'm going to take the trouble of writing to you long letters after every failure you commit and undergo. I no longer attach the slightest weight to anything you may say about your own acquirements, and exploits. If you cannot prevent yourself from leading the idle, useless, unprofitable life you have had during your school days and later months, you'll become a mere social wastrel, one of the hundreds of the public school failures, and you will degenerate into a shabby, unhappy, and futile existence. If that is so, you have to bear all the blame for such misfortunes yourself. And then Randolph ended the letter brutally by saying, your mother sends her love. What a family. There's a reason why rabbis taught that words are like arrows because they can hurt from afar. So much more impactful than a dagger, right? Where they have to be up close and personal. But an arrow can wound from afar, just like these words that were sent to Churchill. I imagine they wounded him greatly. It's not a stretch to see how the tongue is connected to hell, as our passion states. Of note, James using hell, here's the only place outside of the Gospels where Jesus uses it exclusively. The word is Gehenna for hell, and it's actually a place as well, and it's the Hinnom Valley, which is south in Jerusalem. In the Old Testament, this is the location where that forbidden practice of sacrificing babies by throwing them into a fire took place. In the day of Jesus, this was a dump where all the refuse went, including criminals who did not have proper burials and those who are even poor who cannot afford a burial so the stench the smoldering always existed now i'll spare you of course on smells from the dump but know that we can use our tongue and the words that come out of our mouth can be even smellier than that of a physical dump some of us remember being taught sticks and stones may break my bones but words will what never hurt me right I study a lot of different languages. I like how Hebrew expresses that phrase in one word. It's called hogwash, (laughs) right? Words hurt, bones heal. I've seen words damage people for decades and sometimes lead to death. Our words matter. All right, two checkpoints down. The power to guide, the power to gut. Our last stop and a little happier note, the power to gladden. Look at verses 9 through 12. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? And can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt palm yield fresh water. Now here we observe the split personality of the tongue. I think each example is clear on its own. I'm also sure that we've all experienced it. Imagine a scenario where you are listening to your favorite worship music. I'm sure all of you have your favorite. You're driving down the road and you come up to a roundabout. You're so happy and you're worshiping and then someone cuts you off in the roundabout. What changes? Do you continue worship? Or do you, like maybe, someone I know dearly, do you go from worship to war? in one Mississippi, sometimes I'm looking for the invisible rocket launcher. Now, it's been years since I've reached for that, but my wife and kids would always pray and say, don't use your rocket launcher. It's amazing how that split personality of our tongue can happen so quickly. Now maybe you're a saint and your driving skills are, are insane and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. How about this? I thought maybe for the next Todd Talk video, It might be a lot of fun if I could interview your children and ask them what you say at home that you don't say at church. (laughs) That'd be fun, wouldn't it? And again, just so you don't think there's a giant finger pointing at you, there's a whole bunch pointing back at me. My wife and I got to experience um, how our children can be impacted by words. We were visiting a church and our middle child, I won't say her name, but it rhymes with Erica, She was walking in and they had like, it didn't help that the doors look like saloon doors, but she pushed those things open and walked in and she looked at everybody and she was like, good party. Where's the whiskey? (laughs) My wife and I looked at the Sunday school workers and they're like, anybody a fan of John Wayne movies? What we didn't realize by playing McClintock every week was that one, our children memorized the lines, but two, they actually used them in public. And so we had to be very careful, not only on what we said, but also what our children heard. And so it's a huge caution for you as parents and grandparents. Now, our text says that we bless the Lord and curse people made in the image of God. We would be wise to remember that everyone we meet was made in the image of God. Our words can do so much good. The power to gladden another person is a gift that each of us have the opportunity to exercise it. Imagine what it would look like, men, if your words built up the people around you. For those of you who are married, imagine a scenario where you make your wife rich in word and deed. Now, my goal has been to do that for my own bride. And there are days where I think I've made a decent deposit into her life. But sadly, there are days I've definitely taken out massive withdrawals. And it breaks my heart because that is not my intent. And yet I know every one of us struggle with how we use our words. But imagine also beyond the realm of spouse, the children. Think about the children that you have influence over, how you could build them up and and encourage them not only to follow Christ, but to just be a child that's going to radiate that hope that they have because you've shared the hope that you have in Christ. There's so many different things we could picture. And children, young adults, young adults, Think about how your words can bless your parents, your grandparents. You can pour solid gold into their hearts by letting them know how they've impacted your life. We could do a lot with our words. So much we can do. And sadly, it is clear that each of us are inconsistent with how we use our words. So a good question is, where does this inconsistent speech come from? Well, James has been teaching us that the product will be no better than the source. You've seen those fancy cooking shows, right? They always talk about the product. If you get the best product, then you can make this awesome meal. Well, our words definitely reveal what the product is, right? And what's going on in our heart. Jesus cuts to the chase in Matthew 7, verse 18. He says, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So by now, I'm sure a lot of you are already like, okay, What's the solution to taming my tongue? Because clearly we all have an issue with it. The text tells us no human being can tame the tongue. That's true. I like how Augustine identified the words that James shared, though. He said, he does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but that no one of men. So that when when a tongue is tamed, we confess that it was brought about by the pity, the help, and the grace of God. It's the only way you can do it. You need to be a new creature and you need to have a new behavior and a new heart to share the words that God has taught you. All of us are guilty of sinning with our words as I've clearly tried to share with you. And James is leaving us maybe feeling a little bit condemned. This is a rough passage, but this is where I want to encourage you and consider that our sin and to recognize God's provision for every word we've spoken, for every word that we've believed and all of us that have been hurt by broken promises, and for all of us that have broken promises and hurt others. But guess what? God keeps his promises. God loves you so much. And that's the best news of all. If you're exploring Christianity or maybe you're dug in like a tick and you don't believe any of it, let me tell you this. God's given me one more day to live to share the good news about a promise that's never been broken. You see, God's word says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. God's word says that he desires to have a relationship with you. He actually wants to know you. The Bible makes it clear all of us have sinned. I don't think this is a big debate. And then, sadly, for those of us that are overachievers and think we can earn our way to heaven, the Bible makes it very clear that you cannot earn your way to heaven. But thankfully, God knew that. And that's why he sent us on Jesus Christ to live that perfect life, to die in your place and to die in mine. And everyone... Listen to that word. I love it. Everyone who places their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done can have eternal life and can begin today. He died for us. God raised him from the dead. Best decision you'll ever make. I shared with you up front the big idea is that the tongue is the best measure of Christian maturity because it reveals the condition of one's heart. Review your normal week and picture the people you interact with. Start with your home, work that commute all the way where you work, go to school. Would the people you interact with be surprised if they found out you were a Christian by how you've spoken to them? That'd be one way I want you to examine your heart today. And for those with family, make it personal. Start at home. How do you speak to your spouse? How do you pray for them? How do you speak to your children, your grandchildren? Are you pouring life into them? Are you building them up? are you taking away? Every one of us have a responsibility to use our words wisely. As we seek to grow in maturity with the use of our tongues, let's ask God to be the Lord of our lives and our tongues. And it's clear that our tongue displays who we are. And the fruit on display is the product of your heart. So if you're struggling, stop trying to fix it on your own and go to the one who made your tongue. As you ask God for help in this area, you may want to ask him for courage to do some repair work too. Two powerful words go a long way when they're meant. I'm sorry. Some of you might need to go to somebody and say I'm sorry for words that were said years ago. Some of you maybe need to say I'm sorry for your commute to here. But the bottom line is, have the courage to go to that person and apologize and let God do the healing there. (laughs) Others of you might be stingy with the words, I love you. I would encourage you to use those generously, to bless people with them. It's sad when people don't understand just how important those three words are and how they can change the course of a child or an adult. In 1989 specifically August, a very uh, un... Well, how do we approach this? It's an extra-biblical song. So Garth Brooks wrote a song called If Tomorrow Never Comes. But there's a beautiful truth in that, and then he asked himself, speaking about his bride, if tomorrow never comes, will she know how much I love her? And so for me, having gone into just cause in 1989 and losing four teammates and having a dozen more wounded... I learned very early on in my career that there's no guarantee about tomorrow. I shared with my wife and my kids, often Proverbs 27.1, that we don't boast about tomorrow for we do not know what a day will bring forth. And so it's so important to share those important words, I love you. And so if that's something you've been stingy using in your family and for those under your care, please put those back into practice. Because ultimately church we have a tremendous responsibility to speak the truth in love. And we're called to walk it like we talk it and to love like our Jesus. We all need to have the passion and courage to go to the lost, not only locally, but globally, to let them know how much Jesus loves them. I pray, and I've been praying all week as I've been working through this passage, that we would be a people faithful in how we use our words, that we use them to build others up, to make people rich in word and deed. May we be a church that is known for that. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. As we close this time of worship and reflection on Your Word, we are reminded of Your the great responsibility that comes with our words, and so we thank You for Your teaching, the challenge, and convict us, and shown us the path to righteousness. And we humbly ask for Your strength and discernment as we leave this place. May we not only be hearers of Your holy Scripture, but doers also. Impart upon us, O Lord, the courage and steadfastness to tame our tongues, to speak life in every situation, and to use our words to build others up and to glorify your great name. Help us to remember the power we wield with every word we speak, to be slow to speak and to quick to listen. Let us be vessels of your peace, spreading kindness and encouragement, quelling discord and fostering unity. May your spirit guide us as we go about our days that we might be ever mindful of the impact of our words on the hearts and minds of others. Empower us to speak with love, to offer gentle words of wisdom, and to always affirm the truth that is found in you. We commit our actions to reflect the lessons learned today, to build bridges and to heal wounds of our speech. And as we walk in the light of your grace and truth, we pray for your blessing as we depart, that we might be lights in this world, ever glorifying you in word and deed. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and redeemer. And the church said, amen, Amen, church.